everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, a podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and enthusiasts like Josh and me. I'm Dan. I'm Josh. And today we'll be discussing all things quizzical and aeroentical part two. After we handle yes. some emails, we're going to talk about the second half of our dragons because we did emails last time around about dragons. Uh, so we covered those. Those are out of the way. We're going to handle the other other things you might want to know about dragons in Earth Dawn or Earth Dawn dragons. We did like an hour 20 or so <laughs> on dragons yeah. and still didn't get through everything. So we've no. got a sequel. We've yeah. got the, the return of the dragons where we're going to cover the stuff that Dan made notes about that we didn't get to because we were like, we just, we got to move on. Exactly. Uh, second verse, same as the first. But No, not until... same as the first. <laughs> it's more. More. More and better. Worse or better? Second verse expanded? Yeah. I don't know. Something like that. Third, third, for, I don't know. Anyway, so let's get to some emails first. These are both long rambling emails, but we're going to enjoy every word of them because these are um, one of some comments about the shaman spells episode that we just did oh, yeah. a couple of episodes ago. And the second one is also long and detailed, but we'll get there. So hi there. Just thought I'd chip in a few comments as I play a shaman and have tried out a few of these spells. Invoke Leopard Pounce is an extremely strong spell at Circle 1 and remains valuable throughout Novice Tier, although it becomes weaker against enemies with higher knockdown ratings, but becomes considerably less powerful when enemies start getting multiple actions, which is mostly around where Journeyman Tier starts. The one additional point where it is exceptionally strong is against flying enemies, of course. Having said that, as your circle increases, I find that other spells tend to become a more powerful use of your actions. That is... A very cogent analysis. I did say that the spell was really, really nice and really, really popular. The yes. extra threads mechanic does mean that spells have a longer lifespan within the career of a magician. But really, it's not super intended that, oh, your first circle spells are going to continue to be on par or equal or as effective once you get up into journeyman or circle six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that uh, we'll next Moonglow Moonglow is actually quite valuable not just for the ability to produce light for an extended duration which is nice on demand also nice that you can have more as needed and in a fairly wide radius especially as you get into higher tiers but most especially for the fact that the light is explicitly not very noticeable beyond the radius this is the unique function of the spell that cannot be replaced by simply spending some silver Every other light source pretty much makes you shine like a beacon in darkness, literally. Yeah. I did not have the... Spell description up. I didn't read the spell description specifically. Like, I had the yeah. spell list up as we were going through them, but I didn't read the spell description to pick out that detail, and that is a very good one to call out. Especially Absolutely. if you are trying to move through an area without being noticed so much. Mm -hmm. That can be a, a useful... Yeah, it's, it's more to, uh, moon glow than spotlight. So yes. I like that. Otter swim has a major difference in value from something like crunch climb. It increases your speed while swimming. In my experience, that is at least as significant as the bonus to tests. Yeah, that's useful. Because mm -hmm. unless you're a Tuscrang or an Obsidian who can't swim, you're only at half your normal rate when swimming. And so the otter spell makes that yeah. higher. Exactly. Very nicely done. Pack Tactics scales beautifully. It basically never stops being amazing. Yep. <laughs> As Josh called it. 
Mark of the Boar has been a spell that I consistently always want to have prepared. When someone gets badly wounded, the spell is extremely powerful. I also always try to keep it in a matrix. Yeah, actually, that is a fair assessment to actually have that spell as something that you have on hand to turn around a situation Mm -hmm. as opposed to, oh, we're going to be going into this fight. Let me cast Mark of the Boar. If somebody is getting hammered on and they are getting a number of wounds, then Mark of the Boar, they're already in a rough situation. Mm-hmm. So casting Mark of the Boar on them at that point reverses those penalties. And yes, at that point, I think it's conditional imposition where it requires them to behave a certain way is less of a problem. That is actually a really, really smart use of that spell. Well done, Brian. Mountain Goat Leap has been surprisingly difficult to use effectively for me. The main problem is that the short duration makes it implausible to keep it always active. Combined with the fact that Great Leap is frequently an ability you don't know you're going to need until just before you need it. Yeah, Mountain Goat Leap is probably not a spell that would end up being used in combat so much, which is when a lot of people kind of think of using Great Leap because Mm -hmm. of its combination with Downstrike. The idea is that you combine Great Leap with Downstrike or you use Great Leap to put yourself in a position where Downstrike can be activated. Because Downstrike yes. does have its situational limitation. Mm-hmm. But I think that Mountain Goat Leap would serve a similar purpose to, say, Crunch Climb or something like that, where you want to provide that additional bonus in a situation where having that leaping ability, say, to get across a chasm or something along those lines would be worthwhile. Yeah. So uh, Brian just wanted to share his thoughts that uh, we, since we shared ours on the podcast – Thank you, Brian. Love hearing the feedback on the yeah. spells. That's actually Absolutely. the first feedback we've gotten on any of the spellcaster spells. So all the rest of you slackers, get a hold of us. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Go the back and listen address. to those episodes and send in your, your email. Your uses. Of, you're yeah, saying what you think of the spells. Especially where you might disagree with the assessments that, that I had of them. If you have a different experience or if you've found situations that were really worthwhile. Somebody actually to go back to a commentary Mm -hmm. that uh, I had made, I talked about my frustration uh, on Fun With Doors, Mm -hmm. the illusionist spell, and somebody pointed out that one of the things that you could do with the illusions that you are doing for these doors, they asked basically if doors are standardized. Or if different places would have different sized doors based on who would be using them. Mm -hmm. And I did bring up that you've got Terror in the Skies, an adventure, a portion of which takes place inside a windling-only care. And so, Mm -hmm. so much of the stuff in there is sized for windlings, that therefore there are doors that are only so big. I also pointed out the picture in the 4th edition player's guide that opens uh, to the Saddleborn, the short story that's in there, of the troll coming through the door of the, yes. you know, that sort of opening scene, and how the, the troll is kind of needing to squeeze their way through. And so the illusion could play with the size of the doors as well. If you can make a door that would nor- like be normal size, but maybe shrink it down and make it look windling sized and pull like an Alice in Wonderland kind of situation. Ooh, yeah. That you could play with those kinds of things as well, which is actually an interesting idea that 
hadn't occurred to me until it came. <laughs> so even now, all this time 20 later, odd 20 odd years in, we can still learn something. Which is fine. I've never played an yeah. illusionist, but I mean again, there are still some issues with the spell, but that is another thing that you could do with that. Absolutely. So on to our second email, also long. Uh it's hello, this is um Mathieu from Massier. Poland again. Massier, uh pronunciation guide. And I'm going to butcher it. I'm sorry, dude. Unless you, if you want me to get it right, call in. We actually have a voicemail and we've only ever gotten one. Yeah. If you go to uh, anchor.fm slash EDSG podcast, I think Mm -hmm. that's the URL. There is an option to actually leave a voicemail. And if all you want to do is say, hi, this is Massier and this is how my name is pronounced. We won't Mm -hmm. even necessarily play it on the show, but at least we will know. Yes. And if you leave us a longer email, a longer voicemail, we've dropped that in before. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. The one time we've gotten one in 77 episodes. First, I would like to thank you for your answer to my last question from December regarding oracalcum deposit in Vivain and the premature end of the scourge podcast number 52. I'm happy I got a glimpse of some of the big secrets of this game and your answer actually provided me with some general ideas on how to build the grand political scheme behind my adventure. Cool. Glad to hear it. That was a, a deep lore cut. <laughs> very, very deep. I was unaware of that that deep cut. So, since the next podcast is going to concern dragons, he's one behind. Yeah, we received this email after we recorded 75. Which is fine. We're doing part two anyway, so here we go. And as I like discovering the secrets of Earth Dawn, I have a very straight question when I think many listeners have pondered over for many months, since Josh likes to mention this issue from time to time. Smiley face. (laughs) What is the whole affair between immortal elves and the dragons? I'll let Josh collect his thoughts real quick. I understand that the hate between the Therans and dragons began before the Orichalcum Wars, and that it connects somehow to my previous question, i.e. the origins of the Scourge. Dragon ritual magic, Virgigore magic cycles, all of that. What's the deal? Okay, if you don't want to be spoiled on deep history secrets of earth dawn <laughs> skip ahead a few minutes in this episode like five yeah i'm so set a timer if we're if i'm still talking about this in five minutes remind me to say hey no keep going um <laughs> skip ahead and if it seems like we're still talking about this then then okay yeah. so much of this is conjecture that is drawn from Stuff both within Earth Dawn, especially some of the stuff that Vazdanjas talks about in his treatise on dragons, but also some other things, as well as some stuff that kind of shows up and is talked about in Shadowrun. Some some clues show up in Dunkelzon's Will, Portfolio of a Dragon, I think is mm-hmm. the name of the, the book, um, which is a phenomenal, like, it's an amazing, I love that source book. <laughs> Won't go into more of that. But basically, the stuff that was kind of revealed within the Dragon Sourcebook and kind of pieced together from various other sources. Back in the prior Age of Magic, so we're talking about what would be considered perhaps the Second World, sometimes referred to as the Age of Dragons. The great dragons, the dragons of that time, either bred with name givers or did some kind of magical thing with certain name givers in order to create servants 
that would that would that would have the same kind of long term view that dragons had of things. It's actually unclear, and we haven't really decided whether the immortal elves are dragon kin in the traditional sense. We talked about this a little bit in the previous dragons episode. Yeah, whether they are dragon kin in in the sense that is talked about in Empty Thrones or and and in the Iopos book. Or whether they are something that's a little bit different. But the general idea is that there were, the dragons created, Alamaze, I think it was Alamaze, probably, was responsible for the creation of the immortal elves as servants that would live for a very, very long time. And presumably continue to live when the magic cycle dipped to the point that the dragons would have to hibernate. Yeah. Being kind of vague here because we don't actually have a lot of details of exactly what happened. Alakia was one of these immortal elves. There, I'm sure, were others, but Alakia is definitely one of them. Alakia is very likely Kainreth, as described in the elven histories and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the elves decided that that basically with the dragons not around, they had the opportunity to rule the world because they were immortal or functionally immortal beings that had all kinds of knowledge and whatnot, even if, say, the magic level of the world was not enough to support their the, the maximum ability of their power. They knew a lot of stuff and, and had the long view and could manipulate things where they ended up in charge. And as part of that, kind of attacked some dragons and killed them, potentially, and various other things like that. Basically, that the immortal elves are the generation after the dragons, and the dragons had made some mistakes that we will sort of be getting to philosophically later in this episode, I think. (laughs) The elves basically were like, well, you guys made mistakes. We're smart. We're not going to make those same mistakes. And then proceeded to make the same mistakes, sort of. (laughs) Oh, hubris. Yeah. So. Essentially, in a sense, the immortal elves are the dragon's children and rebelled against their parents. And the whole elf dragon thing is a family squabble that has been going on for thousands of years. So that's the general gist of it. The immortal elves are the dragon's children, didn't like being told by their parents what to do. When the opportunity came, they did what they could to try and overthrow their parents. The dragons realized that, you know, maybe having servants that are awake and active when we're not is a bad idea. That's what <laughs> prompted the prohibition on creating dragonkin, on breeding with name givers. That's what drew or or prodded Icewing, also known as Dollmaker, to create the drakes. That the drakes are basically the dragon's second attempt at doing that with servants that will also go into hibernation at the same time the dragons do, and also that rely on the dragons for their own reproduction, for their own – oh, there's the five minutes. Keep going. One more minute. For their own continuation of the – you know, of, of their line, of their existence as a people. Yeah. Rather than being able to breed and have their own families and everything the way that the elves do. So that's the general gist of it, and there's – Even more, the whole (laughs) Thera dragons thing connects to that. Uh, I will save that 
potential for deep secret for, for another time, except to leave you with this thought, which is that the history of Bar Save, as it has been presented to us, both in first edition and continuing all the way through fourth, is a document that is being that is presented in setting. It is an actual, it is the history as the Therans tell it. And there may be several reasons why the Therans tell it that way. But I'll say no more on that for now. Exactly. That's sort of a big broad strokes what's going on with the dragons and the immortal elves. Six minutes. Pretty good. So Masiej has uh Masie has one more a uh, couple more points to make. Before I leave, one quick note. I really love the episodes on passions, especially since I like episodes which not so much delve into the mechanics of the game, but focus more on the lore. However, kudos to you guys for going to the lengths to give reasons why a name giver would decide would decide to follow any passion, including mad ones. When I run my games, I try to present the world as it is really, or as it really is, rather rather gray than simply black and white. When a name giver decides to follow a mad passion, it shouldn't necessarily mean that he himself is mad. There might be something about the passion that the name giver finds reasonably attractive. I.e., this could be seen as a passion bringing nearly bureaucratic order and hierarchy, which makes a lot of things simple, though painful. Rygok, in my interpretation, could be a passion of brutal choices which equals brute force with power in a realistic struggle for survival, and Vestriel could perhaps be looked upon as an anarchist. Yeah, and that's certainly, those are certainly ways that you can approach it. I would say that, at least from a development standpoint, the perception of the mad passions as mad is not necessarily something that is purely within the setting of the game like that's not something that oh these people believe that the passion is mad but they're actually not it's more something that has generally been there there are some different ways that you can approach it but i generally like to think of the mad passions as being affected in some way by the damage and corruption that the horrors wrought during the scourge i agree i think that if even these incredibly powerful and mysterious and pseudo-divine beings can be affected by the horrors. I think that says something quite a bit about the actual threat that the horrors posed. I think that the horrors should be threatening. I think the fact that, you know, while it's possible that some aspects of what was going on with the horrors might have been overplayed by the Theron Empire for their own purposes... Mm -hmm. There are plenty of examples of places where the horrors are exactly as awful <laughs> as they are made out to be. Yeah. If you look at Ezerthgrath, uh, for example, wonderful, wonderful, awful, <laughs> awful entity. Exactly. And any number of other, other powerful horrors that have information provided to them. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that certainly looking into redeeming the mad passions or finding the source of their illness for lack of a better term and, and seeing if there's a way to heal that mm -hmm. I think is fantastic as a potential long-term epic campaign goal, but that they are actually damaged or mad or tainted or corrupted in some way mm -hmm. rather than that simply being the point of view of people. I think somebody might go toward or be enticed toward a mad passion for noble reasons like that. Yeah. But the very nature of the passion, the more devoted they are and the more in communication or in communion with the passion that they are, that madness, that brokenness, that taint is going to rub off on the follower in some way. And I think that it is 
maybe not inevitable, but very, very likely that someone who is really devoted to that is going to end up damaged or broken or corrupted themselves in some manner. Yes. Uh, his point is to make a passion and the characters multidimensional, as people are. Whether we deem them good or bad, we might not agree with their choices, but usually people make decisions that bear some thread of reasonableness. In our contemporary politically polarized world, he thinks it's even more important. Um, yeah, I'm going to so, let that rest where it is. Fair. He made his point. Uh, thank you, Massier, for your email. Love and long as it was, we loved every word of it. So please let us know how you're doing. Give us some more questions. We got we'll go one more, there. actually, that arrived oh, here very shortly before we we sat down to to go recording. This is in response to our previous episode where we were talking about paths and oh, the wow. Brother of Stone. Talk about recent. Uh, this is from Jesse. Uh, he writes, hey, guys, I was listening to the first Path episode this morning. Yay. I think paths are awesome and a great way to handle the old, quote, minor and racial disciplines. Kudos to Morgan and the rest of the team. And I absolutely again. Josh made a comment during his discussion of the <laughs> development of the Paz idea that made me wonder uh -oh. if it was in thinking about how light bearers could work that helped spark the idea for Paz, at least in universe. Is there a reason why a light bearer path was not included in the book? They seem an ideal candidate, not surprising given how the development of the idea seems to have come about. And so I found it odd that it isn't included. Is there a possibility that it might be coming in a later book or was there a more deliberate reason that it wasn't included that would preclude it? being developed for fourth edition, which is a which is a great question. Fair question. Absolutely. Yes, there is a possibility that it might be developed for a later book. I think one of the issues with the light bearers as an organization is that at least within fourth edition, we haven't really found the best way to use them. They are something that was kind of introduced as this, I think, potential overarching player-based secret society akin to perhaps like the Harpers from Forgotten Realms or other sort of organizations like that that could be directing player character groups to go on particular missions or to do particular tasks or things like that. Yeah. I think that is sort of the genesis perhaps behind them. I could be mistaken. I'm not sure. They were originally in the um, – either in the Earthdawn Companion first edition or – I think that's where they because they were in the same book that the original rules for questors were because they I were wanna, in that same book. I want to say they were in the companion as well. All that aside. <laughs> yeah, I don't know necessarily with especially the introduction of other organizations and so forth in in later books that the light bearers necessarily needed to have much of a role. There's a light bearer that's introduced in the Thrall source book, the first edition Thrall source book, uh, Isam Dare, I think is a is the character's name. He's an Ipsidaman um, and is like either the the head or one of the high ranking members of the light bearers. So they do kind of show up here and there, but they were never really involved in much of anything as far as the story development that happened with fourth edition with um, first edition and prelude to war and leading up to what would have been Bar Save at War. Second edition kind of did a little bit with them in Scourge on Ending. I think it was the, the book that they that they showed up in. Third edition never did anything with them. If we can find something to do with them, if we can find a purpose wherein we would introduce them, it's certainly something that we could do. And I think that coupled with there was only so much space in the book and more priority was given to fleshing out the racial and minor 
disciplines into paths and developing a couple of new ones to be in that book along with the shaman and the and whatnot that just space <laughs> there wasn't space for it and there wasn't there didn't seem to be any kind of pressing need for it given the development and setting history of the game fair good question worth yeah i mean question. in one sense they it was it was sort of like they were an ideal candidate because they at least in my mind were the next step beyond quest wars it's like well could this mechanical thing be applied to other things and going oh the light bearers already kind of operate on that similar kind of premise because they had a talent called light bearer i think is what it was called that mm -hmm. as the rank went up you gained access to different powers the higher the the rank was yeah and so it seemed like custom made to to go under that paradigm <laughs> but there was no we didn't feel there was any real pressing need to include them because that would be something that would be very much more heavily ongoing story based and setting based than than was required for the other ones that were being developed. There are not currently any plans that I'm aware of for them to show up in a book in the very near future, but they're there and it's possible. I know that there's at least one person has taken the past framework and worked them up as a path. So it's out there. It'll get worked in maybe, kind of, sort of, eventually, perhaps. That covers the first half of the show. We've got some emails in there and done. So thank you all. And once again, you can get a hold of us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. On to part two of our dragons information. We covered the life cycle of the dragons, kind of skipped through some other little things I think we might need to spend a bit more time on, a little bit. Uh, we mentioned that dragons are creatures of ritual and... We kind of skipped over the fact that dragons know, since they're aged as long as they are, that they mostly tend to know all of the name giver languages. So, yeah. good luck having a secret conversation in front of them. <laughs> with dragon speak, they can read your mind, and with they know all the name giver languages, they can hear what you're talking about anyway. Um, but during the rituals, when you if you get the chance to meet with them, every movement possible and posture has a meaning to dragons. So be aware of your body position in space and dragon speech itself is just a projection of the, of their thoughts into another mind. But the way they keep their knowledge and the way they keep their lore going throughout the centuries is they have these memory crystals. Yeah. They we talked about speech. those. <clears throat> yeah. A little bit. We, we did cover those last time. Just want to make sure we're getting, Back to where in the flow of things. Uh, but the most important place to a dragon, of course, is their lair. Sometimes they have more than one, but they kind of carve out this is where they live, and then the area around that is where they is their domain. It's theirs. Don't don't tread on their land unless you're invited to do so. Because <laughs> they kind of take a offense to that. But uh, some lairs are hard to find due to the corruption and taint in the area, but dragons sleep like cats. So we didn't really talk about Shalmora. We kind of just glossed over Shalmora, which is kind of like the dreaming that Obsidian do after they emerge and they're in flooded with all this knowledge and then they get to walk around. Any thoughts on Shalmora, Josh? Not really. Otherwise, don't disturb, don't disturb a dragon in it. <laughs> dragons, particularly great dragons, tend to have a strong magical connection with their lair. Mm -hmm. And even when they are presumably asleep, they are aware of what's going on within their lair. Yeah. 
So it is very difficult to sneak up or catch a dragon unawares within their lair, yeah. even if they are in Shalmora in, a, in that sort of sleeping state, because their magical protections and magical attunement with their lair will frequently alert them when something is amiss. Yeah. Not to mention so, the servants and various other things that they might have that also might be in there that, <laughs> that could alert them to what's going on. So that little magical ability leads me into the other magical abilities. See my segue there? That's how we do it in the pros. That's how the pros do it. Just in case nobody knew this, but it's kind of uh, Captain Obvious here. Dragons are like innate spellcasters. They have the dragon speak, of course, but they have dragon sight, which is a higher form of astral sight. They can see spell pa- they can see patterns period just you know uh and they also get to create raw spell patterns at will and therefore they can if they want to use a spell ma- spell matrix if they want to but they don't necessarily have to and just create spell magic when they want so mm-hmm. if the spell's not in the book congratulations uh dragons get to do whatever they want with magic and create whatever kind of spells they want and mostly they just can invent spells as often as they need to. And they are known to have several discipline spellcasting abilities at the same time. So they might know wizard and shaman and nethermancer and be working on the other two. So yeah, a lot of dragons know a lot of spells. Vazdenjas does kind of talk about it a little bit and says, yeah, we can learn spells like wizard spells and elemental spells. We don't really need to, but you guys are actually (laughs) pretty decent at that. And they're really like efficient. And so we can do that. But if we need to, we can do other stuff as well. Again, the the classic like Vazden Jass, (laughs) oh, you guys are so cute (laughs) approach that he takes Mm. where he is clearly enamored of what the younger races can do. Yeah. But takes every opportunity within that context to talk about how much more awesome dragons are. Because they are. Yeah. I mean, I, that's self-evident. He if you thinks, dispute yes. that fact. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we got some. They'll have words. Got some talking to do. Anyway, um, but their thread magic uh, depends upon the dragon themselves, obviously. And it's woven, as Josh said, to their lair to improve all of their traps and their wards and their abilities and so forth. So this is like their ultra safe space that also boosts their magic when they're in it. So it's it's a twofer on the lair's thing their beliefs in spirit magic also depends upon the dragon some of them actually will use spirits to run errands send messages do some tidying up whatever the case may be not all of them do some of them do but the really big issue i think josh can can speak to more often is the their views on blood magic dragons don't like it (laughs) yeah it's I mean, their feeling of it is obviously (laughs) the younger races aspire to the greatness that dragons are and have found blood magic to be a way that they might be able to start to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. But it's crude and really unnecessary if you really knew what you were doing. And generally, the fact that so much of blood magic tends to end up getting wrapped up in bad practices, like, say, mm-hmm. the Theron Empire's use of blood magic from their slaves to power their airships and stuff. Yeah. Dragons don't necessarily care about the lives of individual name givers, but there's also a certain kind of patronizing... Condescension? 
condescension and we know better <laughs> and yeah you can kind of get a lot of you can get magical power through the blood of sacrifices of people but that's kind of like it's just not done it's it's déclassé it's kind of crude and kind of a waste really because okay you've spent the lives of dozens of people to move your flying rock from place to place what so what did that accomplish mhm and again this kind of ties back a little bit understanding theron origins and their relationship with dragons that this all kind of ties back to ancient history of dragons and their erstwhile servants and things like that yeah the dragon's feeling on blood magic is mainly that, honestly, if you know what you're doing, you don't need blood magic. Yeah, this is vile. Uh, but they do have some rather large involvement in ritual magic in that they know it's incredibly powerful. They know it's not to be taken lightly, and they don't do it very often because of those two precursors. Right. So now we talk about... <laughs> now we talk about Vivane... <laughs> we talk about the ritual magic that was done by the dragons to move uh -huh. Stormhead from where it was. The idea that the dragons were doing a ritual to do this mm -hmm. should underscore what the severity, the importance of what they felt they were doing. That yes. if they actually broke out the ritual magic to do this, it clearly mm -hmm. was in a very specific purpose and even vasinjas in the dragon's source book yeah talking about ritual magic is like we don't do it very often implying that they have made mistakes with it in the past mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why it's possible that the immortal elves were not dragon kin in, in the sense that most people mean that but are perhaps the results of ritual magic gone awry in some manner mm -hmm. i don't know that is one of the the reasons for that but basically that dragons have have done bad things with ritual magic or have made mistakes with ritual magic in the past and so are very careful another theory that i've seen floated in relation to that is that the very existence of a magic cycle itself is as a result of dragon ritual magic having gone wrong in some way there's your second bombshell for the episode yeah well that is that is something that is much more of a there is a lot less certainty published material that <laughs> kind of supports that but that is another notion that either the magic cycle itself that perhaps if you go back and you look at the the origin myth of the dragons the one that icewing tells mm -hmm. which relates to vergigorm and the horoi and all of that stuff that it could be that in an attempt to block off the horrors from being able to come into the world the dragons did a big ritual that went wrong in some sense and started what ended up being the magic cycle which is why there isn't any information or in terms of a magic cycle before the age of dragons yes that's one idea okay again that's certainly a fascinating idea but it was so long ago it certainly informs what might be going on with them yeah which may also ties into my love and feelings on Alakia, because of course what was done in the Blood Wood was a big, massive, dragon-style ritual magic. Yes. And knowing Alakia and the relationship and going, you know, that, that she was basically like, well, they made a mistake. I'm not going to make a mistake because I'm Alakia. And then went and basically have, has ended up with 
her own unforeseen consequences of the ritual magic that was performed and needing to try and figure out what to do with that. I and love the, the hubris. Irony, the level of irony, so much irony that it's magnetic. Yes. <laughs> that mistake is an echo of, of some unspecified mistake that the dragons did an age before, which is why they all kind of have the feeling that they do and why I suspect Alakia loses a lot of the position that she has when we get into say the, you know, in the shadow run era and whatnot, because the other immortals kind of realize that maybe the dragons had the right of it mm -hmm. and uh, are not as willing to listen to her anymore. But that's, that's something else. But yes, uh, dragon ritual magic talking about Havain and how second edition had the dragons doing a thing to just put a dome over the city that drew the attention of Stormhead. I've talked about this back when we were covering the, the, the timeline for fourth mm -hmm. edition and yeah. why some of the things that happened did, which is that the, the dragons, if they were breaking out the ritual magic, they knew what they were doing. They had a very specific purpose. Yes. And it was to make a point and it was not just a, oh, we're just going to kind of cut them. It was, no, we we are going to show you what happens when you meddle in the affairs of dragons. And that is we are going to nuke your city. Bring the thunder down. <laughs> so, yeah. Dra well, again, going back to our previous dragons. Dragons are not nice. <laughs> the, no. the, the lives of the, the tens of thousands of people that were in that city were not important enough to the dragons in relation to the point that they needed to make to the Theron Empire, mm -hmm. a point that the Therans had perhaps forgotten. Yeah. Oh, they won't meddle in our affairs. They won't meddle in the affairs of name givers. <laughs> Going back to the history of the dragons with Thera, when Orichalcum Wars and, and the conflict that sprung up as a result of the rights of protection and passage, and mm -hmm. how some Therans went after the dragons because the dragons potentially could undercut the Theron monopoly on the rights and actually managed to kill a dragon or two. And the dragons went, no, we're, we're done with that. And strategically assassinated several important people and Icewing perched on the head of the Sphinx, sending the message, no, you're not going to do this anymore. And the Therans went, oh, yeah, right. We don't mess with dragons. <laughs> and the dragons periodically need to remind Thera because the vast majority of Therans are not immortal elves and so need reminding every few centuries. <laughs> you don't mess with dragons because dragons are much older than you and much smarter than you and much more powerful than you and will F your S up. Yeah, I will end you. <laughs> I swear by my pretty little bonnet, I will end you. Yeah, dragon ritual magic, if they're breaking that out, it is a big deal. That's not their first straw, but that's the last straw. Uh, because they do most things methodically and carefully. Doesn't mean you can't screw up like the elves did, methodical and careful in their ritual. Yeah, still screwed up a couple of things. So that covers most of the things about dragons and their innate magical abilities that they all have. So let's delineate more specifically, because we kind of glossed over them last episode, on the types of dragons you can encounter. And exactly, maybe not throw these, or do throw these, into your campaign if you'd like to do so. So the, air quotes, common dragon, which is really the western dragon, aka... Or dragons of earth, because... There you go. The, the dragons, the four varieties, each have an elemental association. Yeah. These mostly can be determined because they all have horns. 
They all have scales in all colors, but usually one color per dragon. But they are... Yeah, with with maybe some slight variation, like they'll be more pale on the underbelly as opposed to the yeah. back or that sort of thing. But Stuff like that. Uh, these are solid, strong, sharp, wise, and fiery um, in temper. Not necessarily fire, anyway. Uh, but they are dragons of the earth. So that is the western dragon. Yes, the most common variety that is in Barsave. Yes. All of all but one of the great dragons, well, maybe two, mm-hmm. if you count Divilganon. Earthroot is the only non-Western dragon that is on the Council of Great Dragons in Barsave. Yeah. And so, so they, are, they are what we traditionally think of sort of as dragons with the two wings and the four legs, front legs and back legs, mm-hmm. and the tail and the spikes and the horns and all of that. The whole, the whole schlemiel. On to... Leviathans, which are the dragons of the water. These are tighter, smaller scales, more like fish scales. They have oceanic colors only. No wings, because they don't work underwater. Uh, but very smaller, but much smaller limbs. Again, they were operating more in like water. More like flippers. More like flippers. But they can fly through the air. So yeah, don't if they want to. Let that, don't let that dissuade you. Ha ha, I'll go up high. They can't get me. Oh, they can get you. They can uh, get you. But they are fastest in the water. And they're the second fastest one in the air. They are really bad on land, though. So if you can get a, a Leviathan onto land, that's your best bet. The Leviathans are the sea serpents. There is not much information about them. There is a great Leviathan that makes its lair in the Aras Sea. Mm-hmm. Gets mentioned, I think, in a couple of different places. Maybe I think maybe it gets mentioned in yeah. the Dragon's source book, I think, gets brought up. There's one who who lairs in the Aras Sea and has a sort of, not a, not a lair technically, but a kind of hangout that they have not far from Europa and really like performers and things like that. Mm-hmm. The Leviathans tend to keep to themselves in the deeps. Yep. And there are no Leviathans that are part of the... Dragon Council of Barsave. I'm sure that there are, you know, especially if we if we were to get out into say the the Celestrian Sea, what is the the present day sort of Mediterranean basin? Mm-hmm. It's a much larger area. Yeah, that there are probably a couple of leviathans, but again, not a whole lot has ever been really published about uh, the leviathans as a thing. Group. Yeah, fair. Uh, they mostly use elementalism spells per se, but they their proficiency with water spells is, you know, unmatched because, again, dragons. On to the Cathay dragons. And we're not going to cover the Cathay source book, but the Cathay dragons are the dragons of the wind. These are similar to Leviathans in appearance, but they do have the long whiskers, as Josh mentioned last episode, and they still have horns. They have very sharp eyesight and very sharp olfactory senses. So they do- And no more. wings. And no wings, but they still can fly. All of them. Yeah, can they fly. can still fly. <laughs> they are the what we sort of think of as the as the Chinese or the Asian dragons, mm-hmm. which are more sort of serpentine uh, in in their appearance. Generally speaking, they tend to at least within the area of their influence in in the East, in Cathay, in the surrounding areas, mm-hmm. tend to have a a closer relationship with. The lesser races with the younger races. Yes. 
as they would put it, being a, a much more guidance, perhaps still carrying on the relationships that perhaps the Western dragons had back in the Age of Dragons and so forth. Mm-hmm. And and in part, that kind of ties into the Asian stories and legends and mythology of dragons as being much more of an involved and divine and reverent, reverent kind of position that they have within that cultural tradition, as opposed to the Western cultural tradition of dragons, where they are generally seen as hazards and things to be dealt with and eradicated and so forth. Yeah. The really cool thing I found in the dragon source book is that the Cathay dragons like to build their layers on clouds high in the sky. So if you're going to traipse around and find one of them, you got to get an airship first. Because <laughs> they're yeah, not easy which- to get to ties into the ideas within that cultural milieu of the dragons as envoys of heaven, of the celestial, of the divine, of being up above and coming down to us, in yes. a sense. Finally, we have the feathered dragons. These are the Quetzal, or uh, from Arakania, and there aren't any listed in Barsave that are revealed in the essay. Uh, these live in jungles, and they are known as the dragons of fire. These are the 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 Quetzal, um, bearing a strong resemblance to one of the more popular forms of the uh, Mesoamerican deity Quetzalcoatl, mm-hmm. which is basically the sort of serpentine body with just hind legs and wings, but also being feathered, often very brightly patterned feathers, similar to Jungle parrots birds. and macaws and and things like that of that yeah. sort of family of birds, but living in hot, humid jungle or desert areas tending to be on the small side, mm-hmm. you know, relative to the others, the, the Western dragons tend to be the physically largest yes. of dragon types and the feathered serpents tend to be the smallest of them. Uh, maybe, on, although maybe on a, a par with, um, with Leviathans, depending mm-hmm. part of that is because of the environment that they are frequently in, which is the, the jungles and, close quarters of that where they need to be a little bit smaller to be able to navigate that terrain. Fair. On- yeah, we don't we don't know much about them other than the <laughs> fact that they are dragons and so deserve every amount of respect and fear that they deserve. Yes. But within the framework of bar save, we don't really have much information about them. Vazdanjas doesn't say much about them basically because there aren't really any in the greater bar save area and so perhaps in a sense doesn't feel the need to expand talk about them yeah so on to the dragon-like creatures you may encounter in your travels there are as josh mentioned the drakes these are the non-name giver servants but are named by dragons they are all created through a particular magical ritual that was originated, I presume, by Icewing, Dollmaker, mm-hmm. um, and has since been shared with other great dragons. It apparently takes quite a bit of resources even for a dragon to create them. Dragons don't tend to have very many drake servants, generally no more than half a dozen, if that. Yeah, usually adult dragons have one, great dragons have a few more. Some Yeah, some dragons do not even use drakes, and quite frequently the drake servants of, like Alamaze, for example, does not have any true drakes 
as servants. Alamaze does have Drake servants, but they're they don't have the shape changing ability that most Drakes have. They only have their dragon form because yeah. one of the hallmarks of a Drake is the ability to freely shift, much like their creators, mm-hmm. between a name giver form and a small Draco form. Yes, but all, quite frequently, while Drakes are independent, they're not slaves. They frequently will have and share a similar outlook and philosophy to the dragon that uh, created them or is their master. For yeah. example, the the one I think I think Usun, for example, maybe has one mm-hmm. Drake servant who is as fierce and predatory as his master is. Yes, a little chip off the old block. So there are there do tend to be similarities like that. There's not much talk of drakes being used outside of Western dragon culture. Mm -hmm. And again, that is perhaps a situation where what is not being said is a big clue as to what might be going on. The fact that perhaps Cathay dragons would be perfectly capable of making drakes, but because of the relationship that they have with name givers in their domains does not necessitate them having drake servants because they have a good relationship and and whatnot with the population with their envoys and servants and so forth yes other things about drakes are that they can assume name giver form as josh mentioned but not windling or obsidian but their natural dragon form is only seven to eight feet tall yeah whereas regular dragons are you know 50 100 they're sort of a a little bit larger than name giver size name giver size dragon yeah and that drake's can and do follow disciplines when they're in name giver form. So if they're wandering around that lair, <laughs> they're not just a, a drake. They're a little bit more. And they tend to be high journeymen to low, like, you know, circle six, seven, eight, nine, ten, depending on their age and how much they may have picked up over the course of things. But drakes are not pushovers. No. Uh, then there are the false drakes, and these are the ones that live in Bloodwood. Those are the ones that are Alamaze's mm-hmm. servants. Those are the ones they do not have a name giver form. They are just That's they are just say, Draco form. Only and they tend they... to not be as intelligent. And slightly more feral. Yeah, slightly more feral, which again points to Alamaze's likely role in originally creating the rebel servants that were the immortal elves um, mm-hmm. and not and you know especially why Alamaze seems to have a very a very strong antipathy towards the elves in general for several reasons but probably that as well yes so does not have any servants that could potentially rise up against him <laughs> perfect then the last one because we've talked I think enough about wyverns we're going to leave yeah. them alone Hydras. Oh, hydras. hydras. <laughs> <laughs> the Hydra in Earth Dawn is a great example of how the original developers would take some classic ideas, yes. some iconic monsters, From and put a twist on them in a way that made them uniquely Earth Dawn while still oh, being yes. completely recognizable for what they are. The idea being that the Hydra in Earth Dawn is the result of a magician stealing a bunch of eggs from mm-hmm. a dragon. 
from a, from a great dragon's clutch. Yep. And doing foul magics with them. And yes. the Hydra being the result of, of those experiments. And somehow the Hydra was able to survive and somehow reproduce. And so there is more than just the one. Mm-hmm. And the sort of connection that is hinted at there, because uh, especially this is revealed in the information that <laughs> the outcast shares in in his section of the Dragon Source book. Mm-hmm. Because Vastinjas is a little bit closed-lipped about where the you know where the eggs came from and so forth. Just basically like, yeah, a wizard stole some eggs, did this thing. The Hydra was the <laughs> result. The wizard was punished, and we try and kill Hydras whenever we find them. Like yes. that's about the extent of it. Mm-hmm. And then the Outcast gives us a little bit more information, saying, "Oh yeah, the eggs that were stolen were from Thermale's clutch." Yes, and it was one of your. It was an eye open. It was one of your forebears. That was mm-hmm. responsible for it. Ba- basically, like, making that... Ca- and saying, if they find out that it was one of your forebears... Like, if if Vastinjas finds out that it was one of your forebears that was responsible for it, then you will have, a like, an even greater enemy than you, <laughs> than you already do. So, like, just that continuing soap opera <laughs> oh, so of the outcast and the Let's other... Let's tell secrets great dragons and the denerastus and all of that yes. um is is just it's it's wonderful it's similar to like how they made the unicorn gave it an interesting twist yes um the manticore like giving like some of these iconic and classic fantasy creatures giving mm-hmm. them enough of a twist from the f- versions that we are most familiar with Earth like Donnie. the cadaver man Yes, take a zombie. The zombie, the iconic zombie, like weak, slow, not much of a threat undead. No, these guys, you hit them hard enough and they get really, really angry and like hit you harder and faster and more times. Yeah. I love the Earth Dawn twist on all of them. The one for the Hydras, we haven't even hit all the high points yet. As you said, um, magically combined, they are wingless, but they have multiple heads. They are, as Josh said, nearly mindless, so, you know, have at it. But no two Hydras have the same powers. So Game Masters get to go a little fun with them there. Um, And most dragons despise Hydras as well, so you're not going to, you know, upset any dragons if you happen to slay a Hydra. If. Big if. A lot of if coming off that plan. Big (laughs) if. A lot of if coming off that plan. Do you have there, or do I need to pull it up, what the... um challenge rating listed in the fourth edition book for the uh the hydra is yeah challenge rating for a hydra is warden or 10th circle warden so so 10th circle and so yeah those I are just those are love big that ass. art of the hydra that jeremy McHugh did basically all of the art in the dragons chapter yeah i want that one uh jeff did one of them but but jeremy did i might pay money for that one a lot of the awesome. um well, Eric Lofgren did the 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 front piece of the dragon, um, but I most of the well. ones through the um, through the exam sample dragons and stuff like that are all Jeremy McHugh, mm-hmm. and they're all pencils, beautifully done. They're all they're no all lie. really really no, cool. No lie, no lie. But yeah, yeah. Why? Uh, sorry, Hydras are nothing to sneeze at at all. Your unconsciousness rating and death ratings are in the hundred and thirty pluses. Go from there. Knock yourself out. Not even to look at the armor with multiple actions and 
you know, some some random assortment, some yeah, some random assortment (laughs) of dragon powers, which could potentially include regeneration. Yes. As again, no two hydras have the same powers. So just stick that in your craw and sleep on it for a little while just to go. Oh, I killed a hydra. Yeah. Good luck. Anyway, uh, (laughs) that about wraps up all of the information we have on dragons, dragon light creatures and all else in the aeroantical realm so if you have any questions for us and we have a, a question for you as well email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com and so as a sort of follow-up to our dragons discussion here if you would be interested in us doing sort of dives into the great dragons of bar save doing depending on how much we can milk out of each of them, one or two (laughs) per episode, episode. similar to what we did with the passions, for example. Yeah. Where we kind of take a half an episode or a full episode diving into a particular great dragon and what is revealed about them, uh, their motives, their personality, their various other stuff. Um, If that's something that you would like us to dive into a little bit more, let us know, drop us an email, uh, post on social media either in response to the posts that get made from uh the twitter feed or the facebook posts that go up about the episodes going live and let Mm -hmm. us know if that's something that you would like us to dive into so that we can let us know if you don't because it's or let us know if let us know if you don't (laughs) because we are absolutely willing to do it but we have plenty of things that we can talk about and we can if people do want to hear more about that now we can sort of give that a higher priority to talk about sooner as opposed to later. Because we're in that. So let us know. Yeah, that's pretty much what we got. So until next time, folks, it is time for you to, yeah, go make your legend. (laughs) Good night. Good night.